In this episode, I'm talking to David Craig, CEO of Isotope. Isotope helped their customers become more sustainable by significantly reducing their energy and water consumption, as well as reducing the cost of data center design, build and operations. Isotope's technology offers extreme cooling performance whilst isolating and protecting the critical IT from the surrounding environment and atmosphere. David and the team achieved this by delivering game-changing precision liquid cooling solutions that make it easier for companies to achieve their net zero targets. Isotope's customers are extremely well-known brand names who deploy some of the most innovative and advanced technologies in the world. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us. It's good to see you again. Great to be here, Paul. Thank you. Before we dive into the business and your company background, can you just talk to us about your early life, your home, your education? Yeah, I, 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 I'm from Govan in Glasgow. A early life, classic, a working class family. A Govan's not exactly the posh end of Glasgow, so a you know free dinners at school, um, but you know a mum and dad that were pretty normal, pretty ordinary people, good, kind, decent sorts. And, uh, you know, school-wise, uh, I was okay. Um, quite quite smart, didn't work hard. Uh, so not a university graduate as a result, but um, much more interested in music and things like that. So I spent most of my teen years mucking about, playing bass in bands, uh, acting as a roadie for all sorts of stuff uh very very happily in the punk and the um psychobilly scenes and so on and i eventually though having met the lady that is my wife of these last 39 years we wanted to settle down together and that required something that pays a lot more money than being in punk bands and roadieing i so uh, so i i got a job and, but just a, a classic, straightforward upbringing of good, 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 kind, pretty decent parents. There's a few famous names, obviously, that have come from Govan. But while we're talking around um, music, what's on the what's on the wall? I know it, what's on the wall, but talk to the people who are listening. Who are the, so, uh, the so on the wall, Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees, uh, original NME cover, uh, big fan and a proud ticket owner for one of our gigs this summer. Okay. Um, the, the other is my original 5,000 run cover of Joy Division Unknown Pleasures. So, bought, right, um, you know, shot, you know, within days of it coming out. So just well protected and cared for. Uh, and, and the other one there is the original A&M cover of God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. And I have other artwork in the office. I've got probably the, the one I'm actually proudest of is I have a sound cloud of Hong Kong Garden by Susie and the Banshees which uh, which Susie autographed for me so that's uh, oh, cool. that's I in, here. <laughs> I was in the car the other day um, I was listening to Noel Gallagher big fan of Noel. Noel Gallagher did an interview yeah. with Joe Wiley on BBC Sounds or BBC and I was listening to it on the BBC Sounds um, and had my oldest who's seven in the car and one of his songs was The Pistols um, yeah. and Lennon likes, as he calls it, rock and roll. Um, and he hadn't heard the pistols before. And he turned around and he said, Danny, this is absolutely fantastic. And I'm not sure what to make of that, if that's a good one. 
but it is. It's just you know, never mind the bollocks. It's just one of the best rock and roll albums of all time, and and uh, it's just fabulous, you know. So yeah, it sends a bit of sense uh, as well. Yeah. I think so yeah, and it builds on that. I I really loved the New York Dolls and Bowie and stuff like that. And um, oh, you know, I think it builds on that whole kind of platform, you know, that 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 moves forward. There, I've always been kind of alternative in musical taste, so um, never quite been in the mainstream. Uh, so I, I think it's just yeah, it's fabulous music and fabulous album. And cool. No, good man. Thank you a lot. We could. Well, I could waste a lot of time talk about music and football. So we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll keep this we'll keep this to technology and um, what what we talk around today. So just touch on um, so how does a guy living in Govan comes out of school, having been on free school dinners, etc. How does a career in technology begin? What sort of first started to whet the appetite when did it become a reality for you it started with a journey to the job center the monday morning i decided to get a job (laughs) and i'm all spikes and stuff you know and uh, there was a a job going as a storeman with uh, burroughs computers in livingston livingston newtown and uh, i got interviewed by them uh, that afternoon and they gave me a phone later on and I started as a, a temporary storeman the, the next morning. And uh, that that started my career in technology. Um, so, so, so what year would this have been? So this would be 1984. 84. So uh, 20 years old and uh, time to, you know, get on and, and make a proper living. Uh, so I started as a storeman and uh, I, I, I've always had a good brain. I've always asked questions and stuff. I wasn't over interested in, you know, formal education in, in the sense that it, it, it was quite tedious at times, but I've always read a lot and stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I'm not being boastful to suggest that I had a slightly sort of quicker brain than many of my contemporaries in the stores department. And um, we had a big development engineering group there and uh, they were constantly struggling to get parts. They were lousy at working with the system. And, you know, if they were working on a next generation of something, they could never get, you know, how to get parts out of the stores, all sorts of things. And so I was delivering stationery to the director of engineering and the, 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 the guardian was not there. Uh, so I walked into his office and said, uh, a guy called Ian Carradine, Mr. Carradine, you don't know me. My name's Dave Craig. I, I, absolutely. My hair's like, you know, up here. I can imagine. Uh, yeah. You don't know me. Uh, my name's Dave Craig. Here's a problem that you've got. And, and I think I can fix that for you, you know, how these systems procedures work, etc. So he, he told me to get out of his office in no uncertain terms. And a couple of days later, I get called to a meeting with his sidekick and, you know, my my boss's boss was like, you know, David Craig, what have you been up to? Nothing. Admit nothing. <laughs> so yeah. went and saw this guy and, and it was kind of like, Canadine really likes your style. Tell me more. So they, they actually took me on. And then about nine months after that, they they asked me, they, they rather surprised me and said that they, they were going to break a bit of history and they wanted their very own purchasing guy, the very own buyer. Uh, so they'd gone and negotiated with manufacturing and stuff and I got I got taken on as their very first 
engineering buyer. So I was now in a procurement role. So I was the youngest ever buyer in the history of boroughs and the uh, the first ever not employed in the procurement department. And uh, so I was in, you know, now in this procurement role for all this early stage development and so on. And they also brought in a guy who, who a guy called John Law, who was just a fabulous, kind and, and wonderful mentor, just a good guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so by 1989, I was a senior technical buyer inside the place. Mm-hmm. And then IBM headhunted me. I So based in Greenock, but um, in sort of 89 and then somewhere mid-1990, they put together a global procurement group and I, I get put into that. Uh, so my my boss reported straight to Bob Corrigan, who ran the personal computer whole business. Um, so my boss got called Alan Sullivan. Actually, no, there was John Parson was in the way, but very short line to the very top. And I ended up being the 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 buyer for all the printed circuit boards that the entire PC division used. So everything from Australia, America, Japan, and so on. So I did so much of the early sourcing work that took us into Taiwan, China, and such like. My group brought um, Foxconn into IBM when Foxconn was a $30 million company, not the kind of $30 billion behemoth that it now is. Uh, you know, people like um, Sim Wong Hu, the, the founder of Creative Technologies, you know, he's a bit of a, a legend in the industry, you know, was was it was our group that brought him into IBM and so on. So it was a really fascinating time. And uh, but I, I was doing a huge amount of travel to the Far East and IBM put me through an MBA, which was interesting, having not had yeah. a degree before or anything. And I. You know, so that that was useful, and it was a good time as well. That that kind of like early nineties. If you did MBA, you know, they were paying silly money, and everybody yeah, was running around. So I, I get headhunted at, at the time, and I was keen to not spend six months a year in the Far East all the time. My kids were young, and I and I had a really seminal moment that uh, in ninety three, I think it was. I'd been out in the Far East for weeks, and my my eldest daughter was was just you know year and a bit old and uh, i'd been away and you've got that mental image flying home of uh, you know my wife and my, my daughter waiting for me and it'll be wonderful and marvelous and and uh, and she wouldn't come to me she was hanging on to her mum and she wouldn't come to me and that, and, and that was uh, that really hurt got me. yeah and then I said, need to make a change. And of course, at that time, it would either be going to Compaq or Hewlett Packard or something and just doing the same. So we thought about a real change. We actually applied to go to Australia. I uh, thinking, you know, if you're going to change, change properly. And we put all the stuff in and said, this, this will take two or three years. Um, and in the meantime, uh, an insurance company called Scottish Amicable got in touch and headhunted me to come in and run kind of all their back office services procurement all sorts of stuff and that allowed a much more kind of nine to five type world and you know home with the kids and stuff so it wasn't it wasn't massively exciting to be honest but you know did a lot and it, it was a good space to be for that time and uh, so we agreed to join them and then the Australians said uh, critical skills get your 
go and get your medicals. And it's like, oh, no, well, so we didn't go <laughs> and we stayed sure. with them. And then, um, so, I'd, you know, interesting two or three years with them overall. And, you know, achieved some quite good stuff, uh, particularly when Prudential bought them. There was kind of some good contributions there. But I then get headhunted to come to, to Yorkshire. I live in Yorkshire now. Mm-hmm. And I was part of a team that did a turnaround on a, a refrigeration business, a traditional kind of supermarket refrigeration business. And and long and short, it was owned by, you know, a, a company that uh, put money into it had just lost a million quid at a classic bowler-hatted management of a 1950s type. And despite having customers like Marks and Spencers and stuff, it, you know, failed miserably um, and were losing money. So we came in and long story short on that, we in, in about three years, we turned it around into a four million profit. Uh, shareholders had been offered a million quid for it in kind of 96, 97, and we, we sold it for 27 million oh, well in uh, 2000. Then I uh, started, uh, well, joined and kind of became uh, the, the major partner in a procurement consultancy, uh, which we built up and uh, we, we sold that to Amy, the construction group. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted to try and do better procurement stuff with um, the civil service and all sorts of stuff. And I, I wasn't much interested in that. So I decided to not go with it when they when they bought it. And I, I was asked to come and join a, a software company in Scotland called McLaren Software, which was in a bit of a mess. And I, over the next six years, we got from being a thing that had huge huge losses and a, a old pile of debt and a very very awkward shareholding scenario to be in when i left it in 2008 with a you know a couple of million in the bank and we'd just done our first enterprise deal to somebody who'd never bought a seat of our software before right. uh, which was kind of a, a big ticket thing and i was actually going to semi-retire in 2008 we were going to sell mclaren and all sorts of stuff but uh, so I came out, and then 2008 became 2008, Paul. You know, so um, <laughs> the, the, the year of the financial crash. Yeah. So we didn't sell it that year. Um, yeah. We did sell it a couple of years later, but um, but it, 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 in coming out, it gave me time to do a couple of things. One, uh, we'll, we'll talk about later, but I, we, we did quite a lot of work around a charity that my family run that year. Mm-hmm. I also started just helping out some other startups and spinouts and stuff which I did for a few years, uh, mostly, you know, helping them get going and me then um, having a, a, you know, taking an equity stake and helping build them and getting financing and so on. So I'd run, you know, it, so in that time period, I'd got very actively involved in technology through IBM because one of the great things they did is if you were a buyer is you kind of needed to know what your stuff did and how it worked. Mm-hmm. So I knew, I knew a lot of that stuff from the ground up and, um, you know, and then in software, having run, you know, ran the software development teams and so on, you know, so I was, I was kind of number one salesman for the software as well. And, you know, I can't write code, but I, I know absolutely how to lead teams and get stuff out and uh, push things. So that was, that was useful. So I've always had a, so through the career, I've always been in and out technology somewhere uh, in there uh, in, in, in different ways. And, and then, 
you know, to Isotope, it was, I, I originally joined as a non-exec director. It was okay. obvious that the business had some challenges. <clears throat> and uh, I actually became uh, executive chairman at first. And then as we saw opportunities, we uh, we came into um, the point where the, you know, the board asked me to become CEO because I'd, I'd identified how we could drive value in this business and drive it forward and, and I've, I've been doing that ever since and you know there you go okay. and there we are today i was so hopeful there that you could have given me a, a seamless link when you've got a refrigeration business in sheffield and i'm thinking refrigeration <laughs> Google Assistant, I, go, I can no. get my next question in and then he, he goes somewhere else and there's a different it's a different spiral yeah. so you, you you've neatly led me anyway to where we are today so isotope data centers, the cloud, this game-changing precision liquid cooling solution that you yeah. guys have got. Just just take some time now to talk around the business, what you guys specifically do and, and how, how you sort of changed what would be deemed, I suppose, with the, uh, being a traditional way of, of managing your, your, your data center. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. But at, at the simplest level, what we've done is to develop a technology that allows you to use liquids to take the heat away from your electronics instead of air. Uh, today, most of our data centers on the planet are cooled by blowing fans around the place, blowing air. It's actually very inefficient. It's consuming 3% of the planet's energy and enough water to hydrate 10% of the planet's population. And we need to do more, right? We want to do much more data management and we want to outside of data centers, we want autonomous vehicles and things. So we need more. IT, we need more AI for healthcare, for you know, service and so on. So it's really important that we get that stuff out there. But basically, we're at a point where we need a, a greater inflection in the amount of data we process. Mm -hmm. The processors that are being produced now are too hot to be cooled in air. They are getting too hot. Just expand on that a little bit. What do you mean by they're getting too hot? Why, why are they getting too hot? So the, the microprocessors that sit at the heart of our servers and such like have, you know, for, for the last 10 or 12 years have been somewhere around 100 to 150 watts. With the okay. rise of stuff like GPU compute and so on, some of some of those are six and 700 watts. So if you imagine your granny's old sort of like three bar electric fire, um, you know, each of those is, and, and the big wide ones is a kilowatt, right? But the, the smaller ones, that's, that's 500 watts. So if you can imagine that coming off a little thing, you know, this size, um, and the microprocessors are now 250, 300 watts, and we're, and we're seeing roadmaps that start to make them, you know, hotter and hotter and hotter. Okay. Uh, and, and air really, you know, once you're above 250 watts, it's really struggling badly. So um, liquids are just thousands of times better at transferring heat than air. Uh, but, um, you know, it's all well and good to have a technology, but you also have to have a, a business model that allows an industry that's spent, you know, a trillion dollars and 40 years of value engineering around one way of doing things to make that change. So I think the thing that we've done at Isotope is, is to be not doctrinaire about technology, but instead very much to try and understand the problem and then design solutions that, that solve the problem. Whereas most of what we see in the industry is is we've designed a solution. Can we find a problem for it? And I think that's mm -hmm. something that kind of separates us. But at the simplest level, we allow us to capture that heat, 
and to do a number of things. One, reduce the energy consumption by about 40% to eliminate the consumption of water. We have a small amount of water used in the circuit, but it's, it's a fraction by comparison to the uh, consumptions of today's technology. We can use a lot less space. We can run much hotter in those chips. We can just keep going and going. But we can also actually create a virtuous cycle around that power use because the heat that we capture can be used to heat neighbourhoods and stuff like that. So we can turn an industry that's currently quite a vicious cycle in a, in an, in a sense of ESG, we can kind of turn that into quite a virtuous cycle, but it's not an overnight thing. You need to you, know, you need to take quite a few big players across a few industries with you. But that, that's been our mission. That's what we're up to doing is pretty much trying to you know, deliver that kind of net zero world one server at a time. So water and liquid and a scientist with electricity never felt like it was a good combination. Explains we then, again, assume our grannies are sat next to us. And yeah. obviously yeah. I've, spent, I, I've spent time with you, so I, I understand yeah. to a degree, I'm not going to pretend I know fully, but I understand to a degree how the technology works. Just explain then for our listeners, it's not, not exactly how it works, but generally, what yeah. is it that you're, that you're, that you're solving so, and how do you do it? So if you, if you were to look at a, you know, a high class compute item today, a server, um, you know, it's in a tin chassis full of holes with fans at the back yep. and that'll sit in a rack with big fans and stuff blowing through. They call it a hot aisle and a cold aisle because, you know, some's cold air and then the other side of it is hot air. Um, we kind of remove all of that hardware. We don't need that. So we're now a tin box without holes in it. And the, the compute sits inside, but we're actually using a liquid in there. We're using a, a, an, an oil-based liquid and a very small amount of it. So it's called dielectric. So it doesn't it doesn't fritz your electronics, uh, but it's got a very, very high ability to transfer heat. And liquids are perfect because they can flow around things. They, they, mm -hmm. You don't need to make shapes of them so they can conform nicely to everything. So it means we, we're able to transfer 100% of the heat that's inside the device. So instead of just blowing air and cooling it down, heating it up, cooling down, heating up, we can actually capture the heat and then either, so that you would then transfer to a water loop, but it's like a radiator, like a central heating system. Got it. So there's there's water cycling round, but it's at typically something like 40 Celsius. And we would, transferring that heat would maybe take that up by about five Celsius. And then all you need to do at the other end is either use that heat purposefully or if you need to, if you don't have that use for it, then all you need to do is trim five Celsius off, which in Manchester, for example, uh, is very easy to do. You just pretty much uh, expose it to the ambient and 45 to 40 will be taken care of by the cold, the wet and the wind that's happening around you to some extent. But in, but in Arizona... But in Arizona, even most days of the year, you'll still be able to do that. But in the very hot ones where they're up at, you know, 50 Celsius type stuff, then you use a very tiny amount of energy to trim that 5%. Whereas today, you're, you're, you're taking, you know, 20 degrees Celsius off of 40 odd Celsius constantly in a cycle with air. So just a much narrower band of, of temperature to operate at uh, and just not really consuming that. So 
that that takes all of that energy from that cooling process out but it also takes energy out of the server the server's fans are no longer present no longer running which is about another 10 percent of um energy saving so uh, it's really really significant um you know both from a sustainability but also a return on uh, capital point of view yeah so so data centers i've been in historically for example would be raised floors freezing cold environments for the very reasons you're explaining because obviously the heat's all been to cooling down etc can your technology go some way then to changing these big square blocks into you know different performance tools yeah absolutely fundamentally it's actually possible we could revolutionize the way property and data centers work because we don't need those raised floors and we don't need those big aisles and we don't need the fans we don't need the cold air so you know we actually deploy our technology into offices and such like you you know it could literally live in the cupboard under the stairs it could live Mm -hmm. on the rooftop it could be in multi-story buildings you could repurpose brownfield factories and such like without building really expensive real estate and you could run unbelievably performant very very powerful data centers uh, all through and and that has to be the future actually they have to be you know much closer to where the people are and where the fiber is and where the compute load is um so the big you know the, the big data farms that you see have still got their place but they can be just insanely more efficient we can fit in about a sixth of the physical floor space and so on so uh yeah they, you know uh, there's a guy called Enrique Chechi with Gartner who's got a phrase I like which is the data center is no longer the center of our data and you know, yeah, we can yeah. we can do Putin, we can do compute in many places. So we move from being a technology that just deals with a problem to actually creating a, a very much an enabling platform that says, uh-huh. hey, you can have really low latency. You can have your compute where you want it. It's silent because there's no fans. So, you know, so from a competitive advantage point of view, you know, your compute will run faster. You'll service it less often. It's less expensive to run. And you can go faster. You know what's what's not to like. Uh, so you know there's a very significant enabling aspect of what it does to allow people to to have distinct competitive advantage. They just have to get past the um, you know quote unquote the IT bigot that that likes to keep things the way they've always been. Yeah, and you've spoken to me in the past around how then you could manage that particular building or property, and it doesn't have to be the whole thing's being blasted with aircon at X degree. You could have a part of the building being focused on because it's working harder and turn areas down and that that whole building management. Now, clearly, you're going to say positive things, but just talk to us around how you compare your technology to either legacy or you know, technologies that exist or how we've cooled particular areas, et cetera. Just how would you compare you guys to it? Well, we're fundamentally doing the same job, if you like. We're we're, Mm -hmm. we're dealing with that problem of heat, but it's a much simpler mechanism. There's almost no moving parts, whereas everything today is mechanical with a huge number of moving parts and a lot of space. So, you know, a a very significant proportion of the physical mass of a data center is actually not taken up by the compute but by all the infrastructure that deals with the compute and its cooling so we can kind of take that stuff out the way the challenge of course is for everybody is you've now got computers with liquid around them rather than air and 
data centres are fundamental in exercise and risk management. You don't want to be the the data centre that forgot, you know, that failed to run the payroll on the last Friday of the month or whatever year. So uh, with anything new like that, people will, you know, how does it work with today? How do I get from here to there? Uh, how safe is it? How long will it last in the long term? Will I be able to do that? You know, do my partners support it? Um, you know, do, do my, you know, does my servicing vendor support it? Does my IT vendor support it? So there's quite a lot of levers to kind of pull and boxes to tick, which is why we've we've done a huge amount of strategic work with Intel, with AMD, with people like it, you know, HPE, Lenovo, Dell and so on. Uh, in the background, we've done huge amounts of work with them. And, you know, for example, we were actually at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago right. on the Intel stand, you, you know, uh, supported and very much validated there by Intel. So we were right at the core of their telco offerings and such like. And we've, we've built really strong relationships there. So we're kind of, that's why I say I think it's always a function of business model as well. We've made sure our technology is scalable. We've made sure it's serviceable. We've made sure that there are global supply chains, that there are, uh, you know, global participants who warn and who, you know, tick all the kind of boxes so that if you're that CTO who's nervously looking at his board saying, I'd like to do things differently, you know, we've, we've given you that kind of, you know, 99% confidence yeah. level that you can get to that we can make it work for you. And, and all you need to do then is the, that that leap of faith into saying I'm going to do something differently. And, and and an intelligent CTO, CFO, when they really sit down and really think about the, the return that this generates, it becomes very, very, very significant. If they if they get stuck in the world of, you know, I can just buy one more rack and stick it into yeah, my yeah. data center, they're missing the point. Uh, yeah, so, they get bogged down in the how they're, they're not they're not going to yeah. get to the way you need to get to whereas actually something that they will now come on to when you consider sort of net zero as well and ESG yeah. and sustainability impacts and how you can help improve and and enhance that for your customers that actually becomes a different proposition so go on we'll lead, we'll lead into that net zero with ESG conversation um you know it's a big thing for you it's a big thing obviously for the yeah. company how real is is your technology to to, to helping your customers um, achieve that net zero, that 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 sustainability positive kind of um, impact? So there's a number of ways in which we can do that. So the first thing is that significant reduction in energy and water uh, is of itself, you know, huge. We could be taking half a gigaton of carbon out of the annual atmosphere. Right. by using much smarter technologies mm -hmm. but it also allows us to trim our supply chains you know the servers that we use we can buy fewer of them and make them last longer they can be smaller they can have less componentry which is less inventory movement less cash tied up in inventory movement so you know you can go beyond th those straightforward kind of environmental benefits today but well let's have a more silicon-based server fewer precious metals let's have you know more sustainable design more sustainable application uh, and then as as we as we use technologies like ai and and we want them out in our, our built environment we kind of have to do that very energy efficiently from day one or, or we'll blast the doors off at the other end making a mess of it so 
in 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 summary, I, I think one thing compute is valuable and it's a good thing to use resource for. But you, you know, using forty percent of the energy that you consume just cooling it down is nuts. Yeah, it's yeah. not sustainable. And and then being limited in how fast you how hard you stress that compute because it throttles in air. We don't have that. We take compute to its maximum and keep it there. So you can you can have you know much, much better impact on the type of compute you use, how much you buy, how long it lasts, and so on. Uh, better enhanced supply chains. And, and, and when you start to really build up the kind of scope one, scope two, scope three stuff for the GHG, the greenhouse gas protocols, it has a very, very, very material impact um, but it, it, it it's part of the solution, you know, yeah, quite, yeah. clean energy, but repurposing heat, things like that again, wow, you know, you, you start to get into that place where, you know, we, we, we consume, we, we generate energy once, but we do two, three, four, five things with it, um, which is, you know, highly beneficial. So I'm not a tree hugger, I'm not, you know, extinction rebellion, any of those things. But I absolutely do want my children and their children to live, you know, on the one planet we've got and to be smart about it. And one of the reasons I'm not aligned to the Extinction Rebellions and such like is I think that's classically middle class, you know, a rich kid approach. Uh, we, we'll all stop. You know, five billion people on this planet live in poverty. I think we have an obligation to allow them to become middle class to have you know travel and food and education and all of those i think it's really important so the whole just stop everything and we'll get off that, that how no let's try and find solutions to it focused, yeah. you know how western focused is that you know these people would be horrified to think of themselves that way but i see that almost like colonialism you know it's you know we'll just we'll exhaust we'll just drag all the resources and skills over to here and benefit from it you know, and, and, you know, to hang with the rest of you. So I, I believe they're very well-intentioned people, but actually the, their solutions don't don't achieve enough for us. But they, they perhaps get a place in waking people up to the fact that we have to do better. You know, nobody should debate that the climate is changing. It doesn't matter if it's man-made or not. We, we, we should just try and look after things better. Yeah, uh, evolve, evolve with it and, and react. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I'd like to touch on... Um, bring an investment into the company you uh, you've led on and been part of fundraising rounds in, into the business um yeah. multiple of touch on those for me in terms of either simplistically why you raised um, capital to who you brought in and why those people were important and just that sort of um fundraising journey and your know, timings and those different pressure points that you faced along the way yeah, absolutely. So when I came into the business, it, it already had a, a Series A with two really, really good patient capital investors. One, Aster Capital from Paris, and the other one, Ombu from London. Um, but it was fair to say the business had not really delivered on what had been sold to that. So it was in a bit of a difficult place where it was burning cash, mm -hmm. didn't have a solution that worked properly. And, and, you know, and, and had investors who were, it was also fair to say the board was not at peace with itself. There were okay. some early investors and new 
you know, more corporate investors and, and nobody was doing anything bad, but they, they just didn't see the world the same way. Uh, so there was, there was conflict there. So first thing I had to do was, was make sure we tidied the board up. So we, we, we had to get focused on those kind of corporate investors who wanted to continue invest. So that meant we had to have, you know, difficult, fair and appropriate conversations with the early investors and we had to resolve with them which was done and they were all properly dealt with uh, there. But that allowed us to have a simplified investment structure and a simplified board. Uh, with the cash that was left, uh, we, you know, it was obvious, let, let's go and do something. Let's actually prove that this stuff works and get some early customers and so on. And that's okay. what we did. And then actually ran the business on loans from those investors for a couple of years. Uh, which were convertible. So, you know, it would be a very difficult place for the business to be able to, uh, you know, price itself at that point in time. It clearly destroyed value, not added it through that period. Um, so it made sense to do convertible loans. And then uh, a couple of years in, we were ready to go to the market and raise some more money. So we raised another six million uh, with those two investors converting at a discount, but putting more in. And, and we also brought in then an investor called Edwards Investments, which is a family office. And, you know, family offices have the, the, the pros and cons. I, I think, you know, the thing about it there is one, they, they had they had a good approach to patient capital. Okay. They mm-hmm. were prepared to, you know, stay with the business, continue to invest. I, you know, I, so that, that's worked pretty well. I, I think that is overall. important for this type of business as well. This is not absolutely important. I'm not pretending this is technology of tomorrow, but this certainly isn't, as you've already explained, the education process to your customers. That that shift in whether it's behavioural or operational in terms of what we need to do from a, a global climate perspective, as well as the commercial benefits that you can deliver, and then you're putting in, <clears throat> excuse me, a different technology that's currently existing. This isn't a we'll invest today. And in two years' time, we'll double our money, and away we go. Although, obviously, Absolutely. that's part of, that's part of the sales pitch. Uh, yeah. But you know, this is about backing the technology, what it stands for, you, the management team, and then delivering that over a longer period of time. So that patient capital is it's, important. It is, and and that's been very much where we've gone. So those guys continued to support us through another couple of rounds. We increased the valuation every time through there, okay. uh, so that you know, uh, by late 2020 we'd made our minds up that it was time to go out and do that proper series b okay and we had enough traction in you know key customers etc and I'm, I'm i'm afraid i'm not allowed to name a lot but two of the biggest cloud giants on the planet you know uh, other other key companies that were out there so we'd we'd, we'd we'd establish good traction so we decided there that what we would do is get a truly global uh round we wanted people from every corner of the planet we went out originally to raise 20 million and ended up raising 30 which was and we could have raised more and we wanted to build bring in a real strategic investor as well so i that that's not an easy ask so you know hundreds of presentations lots of people etc to talk to but we ended up we got a, an, an amazing lead investor from Singapore called ABC Impact. They're part of the Tamasek family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they are very, 
you know, the impact tells you they're very ESG driven. Uh, so we aligned very strongly with them and then with us, so they, they took lead. But we were also able to bring in British patient capital. Yep. So that's kind of two sovereign wealth funds in one round. That's no mean feat. We uh, Northern Gritstone uh, joined, so that's Jimmy Neal's uh, outfit that, that's focused on the north of England. A yep. uh, Sustainable Development Capital Limited from from London. So uh, Jonathan Maxwell there. That's a FTSE 250, two and a half billion fund. So they not only invested equity, but also made a facility available that we could use for customers to be able to deploy stuff and, you know, go off in easy monthly payments. So that nice. helps the, the war chest massively. And the strategic that came to us, you know, from the US was that they're actually a British company, ultimately at the top of the group, but very much a US driven side was a company called Envent, who are a kind of three and a half billion dollar player in the industry. And uh, they, they, they add significantly to our ability to, uh, you know, to scale because uh, they have 17 factories worldwide. So somebody said, you know, where would I get this stuff made? Well, Either we can license it to you and you can make it, or if you want us to look after that, we can have stuff made in all of these factories. And they make a lot of the equipment that's um, very complementary to the piece that we do. We do this heat capture, but they deal with that kind of heat dissipation inside of it. So uh, that's given us, you know, a, a real big brother in the industry and really solid quality uh, capability to operate and scale across the planet. And again really strong patient capital throughout and that was very very important to what we did and does that help validate when you're then talking to potential customers that you can say look we've got these people on the shareholder list whether it's the names or the fact that you brought investment in to say look you know we are credible this is this is right this 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 is where this market this is where the shift of behavior is going believe us yeah it's it's all of the above paul you know i i think be, being able to recognise the quality of those, because you know you'll you'll see people they've got an investment round, but it's from you know the Mickey Mouse Co or the obvious one over there or whatever else you know. Um, being able to 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 get something on that scale with those kinds of partners who, who let you know let's be honest their their inboxes are full of yeah. hundreds of really great opportunities. So to 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 be the one that gets through there that gets through all those investment committees you know every one of those was a, a two investment committee journey um kind of thing you know so th these were not easy uh, to to do uh, so i think that gives us some kudos yeah, it, 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 it recognizes that we've got a management team that we've got traction that we've got defensible ip and all of that kind of stuff because the the diligence that sits behind these things is non-trivial it was yeah, it yeah. felt like acquisition diligence so you have to have a bit of heft behind you just going up you know and uh i've got an idea can have a lot of money please uh is is not really the answer to that so you know we had to do our homework we had to be really detailed we had to be you know really thoughtful in the plan and really thoughtful in the investment memorandum and stuff that went with it and we demonstrated that we had a good board that we had a good team and that we had good technology and we also had you know incredible reference customers i'm afraid i'm not at liberty to to name but a, an enormous cloud giant a silicon giant and a, and a compute giant were, were all part of that so you know it, it, it's it's that classic kind of thing you know the 
the the overnight success that that did ten years hard work in the clubs and <laughs> built a fan base kind of thing to get there, you know. Yeah, to give it a musical sort of. Um, yeah, well, yeah, there's, there's five hundred concerts that have gone into that that one show that you happen to see us, and you sort of did all right, those guys or rehearsals. Yeah, you know, I like I like that. Um, coming towards the end now, David. I think um, yeah. it's actually quite important for me as well, having had a conversation with you in the past, for you to have the opportunity to talk around some of the amazing things that you've done from a charitable perspective. Um, I won't describe them because I, I won't I won't do it justice for you. Just um, talk around what you and your family have done. Yeah, so so <laughs> we, you know, I, I I do genuinely believe that I am my brother's keeper, and that we should make the world a better place. And uh, I, back in 1998, uh, uh, you know, family members of the family had a, a holiday in Kenya. It's a very Scottish story. Uh, you know, the Nairobi embassy bombing had happened, so the prices over there had crashed. So it was kind of like 300 quid, full board, I'm having it. You know, what about the terrorists? Ah, we don't care, you know. So whilst there, um, you know, there's all white beaches, palm trees, all that kind of stuff, lovely. But and found a village called Utangi uh, outside Mombasa. And it's a squatter settlement. Uh, thousands of people there and just loads of kids with no education whatsoever. And just heartbreaking poverty. You, you know, it just unbelievably poor environment just houses that get washed away in the monsoons every year um you know people regularly dying of malaria people really starving and yep. and you know one set of clothes would be you know a big achievement in in ownership and there was a school there already i that we found it was set up by some lovely kind of baptist missionaries from germany and we you know how, how much does it cost to help a kid so you know uh, 450 a month at the time was was the the, the reality so we, we started right away educating some kids and then we told friends and so on before we knew it we had 100 odd kids being educated and uh, gordon brown bought in the, the kind of gift aid type stuff and, and it made sense then to become a charity so that you know the tax that people would, would, would could educate that few more kids and then you know long story short we we ended up deciding to build our own school building um and so on and and you know how do you do that well you know we've we've never built one before so uh, I, I i would i would class them as a, a series of whether people believe in the supernatural or not but i believe a, a number of miracles happened where doors opened and people made themselves available to us and wonderful things went on and we when we set the charity up one of the things that we did as, as a fundamental was no paid officers so the, the, nobody gets a salary out of this thing other than our teachers and our cooks and our security guards and such like in africa so we're an employer in the village but the, the, there are no 150 grand CEOs or any of those things. Every penny we've raised, we've raised through volunteerism and so on. And, you know, over the years, we've been able to build uh, an orphanage because AIDS was a huge issue. And lots of kids were being born with AIDS, but also parents were dying. Uh, and the, whilst there were antiretroviral drugs available, there was a huge amount of stigma related to HIV and AIDS. And, and you know, people wouldn't 
present themselves to receive the, the medical benefits that they could at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a very difficult time. Yeah. And uh, so and we, we built up a very significant uh, primary school. We've just we've just become also a first stage secondary. Uh, and we have the orphanage there. So over the over the years, the 25 years or so, we've now educated about 21,000 kids. It's incredible, though. It's absolutely uh, incredible. So, and and you know, some of our teachers now are some of the first kids we educated, and so on. Yeah. And you know, we've we've managed to get a few off to university and things. And bearing in mind, you know, these are the poorest of the poor. And you know, very often with illiterate parents and all sorts of things, they don't have the best of backgrounds. And yet, you know, we've we've been able to get a lot of these kids right up through quality education, and it changes lives. You know, we we've got one who's you know one of our early kids who's now working for the Wellcome Trust. You know, we've got guys that you know we've got kids that have achieved amazing things, and it is that you know teach a man how to fish principle. But I think one of the other things we've tried to do is there's there's two points in which we've kind of imposed, if you like, Western values on them. And, and we've been very careful not to do too much of that. But one was we absolutely insisted that we were educating girls and we were educating them 50-50. Uh, so we, we, you know, which is kind of countercultural yeah. uh, down there. So we, we, we've absolutely focused on educating girls uh, as well. And the other thing that we did, which was quite funny, is we absolutely refused point blank to allow corporal punishment. And it's really funny being berated by parents and asked, will you please beat my child? And it's like, uh, actually, no, (laughs) we absolutely won't. (laughs) I will not beat your child and and nor will the teachers. So that's the two kind of, if you like, you know. The, the things that we've imposed culturally, but outside of that, we've we've run very much inside the education system of Kenya, and we've 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 tried to allow these kids to grow and develop, regardless of religion, regardless of tribe, regardless of anything. The only requirement for access to the school is that they're they're poor. And that, but I remember you first telling me about it. Well, probably one of the first times that that we met, and I was sort of speechless and you know, blown away and um, you should be massively proud and you and your family have done an amazing job and, it, you know, it's not bad from a boy from Govan there, is it, to be able to say, I've, I've done this and you've 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 provided a, a legacy there, David. It's fantastic. No, no it's, it's been a great thing to be involved in. It would be uh, utterly remiss of me not to mention, though, that, you know, my mother-in-law and my wife have been the absolute heart and soul of that. You know, they have, a, you know, put incredible amounts of labour of love into this and and, and i love that you know my wife i think she's got one o grade um you know had a, a yop scheme from school type thing and worked in a shoe shop and you know I, I actually i mean she ended up managing one of the biggest shoe shops in princess street in edinburgh by the time she was like 19. but um but then motherhood came and she became full-time mum and you know She's run. If you if you think of the charity as a business, you know she's running a business that has educated twenty one thousand kids. She's doing it. You know she's at the heart of sitting there doing the spreadsheets and all the other stuff that sits at the core of it, running banking and things. And it's it's uh, it's incredible to see. Uh, and you know she's a girl from born in East Kilbride, but family were in the Gorbals and such like. So um, I, I I just 
in, incredible admiration for you know her and her, and her mother who's been you know a, a really important figure and figurehead in what we've done there and so if anybody wants to just check it out have a look david go educatethekids.com really simple check it out and you know uh, 11 pounds 50 a month educates a child and feeds that child importantly the impact we've been able to make by running a feeding program uh, you know we've seen kids faint with hunger in the playground and we've we've made sure that that stops so we're unbelievably grateful to the you know the hundreds and hundreds of people who've been incredible sponsors and friends to us over the years because uh, they've made a difference We'll make sure we give it a plug as well. So thank you for that. Um, and I do, I do genuinely believe that it was, you know, it's worth spending some time to to give you that 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 platform because what you and your family have done is is remarkable. Right, last question. You've done the hard bit now. <laughs> um, it's actually two questions, I suppose. Um, be interested to see what, what what your answer to the first uh, question is. But who's your icon? Um, that could be any walk of life, business, music maybe um and then what would you say to young david when he turned up to the job center and um, that first that first time the monday after he'd finished school or whatever it was when, when you explained um knowing what you know now kind of thing so your icon in life um and young young gobby david from um, from govin okay you know there's, there's there's many wonderful inspirational people out there but I, I'm, I'm going to revert and, and talk about my dad, to be honest. I, 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 an, an ordinary man with an extraordinary mind. And I, he said a couple of things to me that, that probably help, you know, answer the latter one that, that always struck with me. And one was, you know, never worry about making a mistake, son. That's why they put rubbers on the end of pencils. Or, or erasers if there's any Americans listening. <laughs> okay, nice. and, uh, and the other thing he said to me was n- never, never find yourself being 60 with the rain running down the back of your neck saying if only. Uh, I, and, and it was just, uh, you know, grab opportunities, take them. It okay. doesn't matter what they are. Right. If if you're a if you're a plumber, be the best plumber. If you're a bricky, be the best bricky. If you're a computer genius, be the best computer genius. And it was just just never look back in your life saying I wish I had and and I wish I had that and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, sitting here now and saying, you know, what was sixteen year old me say about me now? Probably, I wish you'd you, you know stuck into the music more and been a rock star instead of you know doing business or any of those things. But I regret nothing. I, I, I regret absolutely nothing. I've been blessed to have an amazing marriage, uh, to have you know kids that I'm incredibly proud of, to have worked with amazing people, you know. So am I Elon Musk? No, I, but I, I, I don't care. Um, so I, 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 you know, I live in Ilkley now, which is. Un- unbelievably middle class. I'm going to embarrass my eldest daughter because never in the history of the entirety of our lives had these words ever been held before. But when she was about 15 or something in, in a stroppy teenage mode, she was running around the kitchen one morning, huffing, slamming doors. And it's kind of like, what's up with you? There's nothing for lunch. And I'm looking and there's a fridge full of stuff, you know, and it's like, what about this? And it's like, is a brie and cranberry bagel 
too much to ask for, Dad. Well, nobody in the entirety of our family histories, my wife and I, ever (laughs) had said those words. Uh, So we've been blessed to live, you know, a pleasantly middle class life. And and I think hopefully through both my business life, I think I've tried to, you know, be an honest and, and, you, you know, decent person through that and to build teams and you know uh, reward people and return funds to investors and and and, and to do value for customers but equally on, on on the charity and other sides is so all in all i hope 16 year old me would look ahead and say you know hey no bad he'd probably, he'd probably look at you and think I don't understand where that person's come from, but that, that's the journey of life, isn't it, in terms of where you, you were. You who's this old square, you know? Yeah, and then when I remember, <laughs> I'm smiling because before we started, I described you as not being Elon Musk, but that was more in the context of me not being Joe Rogan. Yeah. So when you said that, I thought, oh, no, I hope it didn't offend. So it was more, it was more my own in, in, inadequacies as a podcast host rather than... No, no offence whatsoever. But. Um, David, look, thank you. Genuinely fascinating story. Uh, one that... He's needed time to be able to be discussed in terms of your, your journey. And then, you know, as, as people have probably listened and got towards the end of this, realise that not only is the business going to go on to absolutely mega things, but you as, as an individual are uh, fantastic and a really impressive individual. So thank you very much for joining us on thank the uh, Final Chief podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.